So good to see you guys, so good to be here. I am Ty, my name is Ty, one of the members of this awesome congregation. And as I like to say, one of the prettiest employees in Sedaris Church, in my most humble and modest opinion. Um, it is absolutely my honor and joy to be here. Um, and just a cool little inside story before we dive into things. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I began to wake up with the song Hosanna in my heart, um, the version by um, Carrie Job. And, I, and, and as I would wake up in the morning, this, the song Hosanna, Hosanna would just kind of sing in my heart in the background as I begin to like wake up and open my eyes. And then I looked for this song and I would listen to it for days and days. And eventually, Pastor Dave asked me to preach um, on this particular Sunday. And I realized, oh, it's Palm Sunday. It is the Sunday um, where we hear this passage, where we read this passage. And looking for that passage, I realized it was in John 11, or sorry, 12, which is kind of cool because the last time I preached, I preached um, in John 11. So the passage in Hosanna is John 12, and I preached last time in John 11. And so it's like literally a continuation of kind of um, what God has been putting in my heart. I like to think it's this little mini sub-series that God and I are having, um, and it's just a message that he put in my heart, and so I'm really, really excited. Um, and my hope today is that you would hear God's voice and receive this message. Um, a dear friend of mine has said, and a lot of you, my friends, have prayed that I am just a messenger. And so it is my prayer that um, you would hear God's voice, that you would be encouraged, built up, um, and blessed. So before I dive in, let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we welcome your presence in this place. You are the teacher, the comforter. You are the one that points us and reveals Jesus in our lives. Um, as I speak, Holy Spirit, uh, I, I'm just a willing vessel um, of your message, and I pray, Lord, that it, your words um, would just fall on fertile soil, on soft hearts, um, and that it would not come back void, but it would accomplish what it sets out to do, and it will produce many, many fruits in each of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs> um, so the message I have today for you guys is all about worship. I am the least qualified to talk about this, um, but I have three main points about worship. Number one, what is worship? Number two, why should we worship? And number three, how we should worship. What do you do with your hands? It's kind of weird when I don't hold it. Anyways, <clears throat> um, before diving into my first point, um, I really want to take a look at the Hosanna passage found in John 12. And so we have a Bible in the um, chairs, and uh, I would like to invite everyone to open it to page 954. And I'm going to begin reading from John 11, verse 45, um, just to give a bit of context. Um, and we like to say, if you don't own a Bible, that is free for you to take home. All right, let's jump in. Again, apologies. Um, so we really have to use the Bible today. Oh, this is fun. Hallelujah. <laughs> Verse 45, 11:45. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrins and were saying... What are we going to do since the man is doing many signs? This man is doing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. 
One of them, Cyphus, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. You're not considering, buzzword, that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. So from that day on, they plotted to kill him. Therefore, no longer, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and he stayed there with the disciples. Now the Jewish Passover was near, and many went up to Jerusalem from the country to purify themselves before the Passover. They were looking for Jesus and asking one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? He won't come to the festival, will he? The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it so they could arrest him. So this kind of sets the stage um, about how Jesus had just done this miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. And it's by far the most miraculous and final sign out of the seven miracle signs that is recorded in the Gospel of John um, before Jesus' own death and resurrection. Because of this, people are talking. Um, We see in verse 47 how the chief Jewish Jewish priests and Pharisees are all gathering, and they're all freaking out, but why? He says in verse 48, people are believing in him, in Jesus. What's the big deal? What exactly are the people believing in Jesus as? Um, The continuation of verse 48 gives a little bit of insight to why they were freaking out. They said Romans will take away both... Our, both our place and our nation, they were afraid to lose their power. See, these chief priests and Pharisees, they cooperated with the Romans in the administration of the province of Judea, and they were afraid to lose their influence over the people. I find it interesting that these priests, supposedly well-versed in the law, in the Torah, and all the prophecies totally missed the mark of what was info- unfolding in front of them. They were blinded by their own pride. They saw Jesus as this crazy radical leader that would somehow take away their positions. And in a sense, they were right. Jesus would eventually become our high priest, which rendered the need for human priests obsolete. But I'll let Dave and Ryan do the heavy lifting on the exegesis of all that. I know we're going to go through this passage again, so I'm trying to, like, behave here. <laughs> um, but obviously we see Cyphus, he, he, he knew God's plan. He was full of the Spirit. He was high priest of that year. And he prophetically speaks the truth about Jesus very loud and clear in three verses. He lays down the Gospel 101. And so we move on to the story in John 12, where I'm really going to focus on. John 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. They gave him dinner for him there. Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, Why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag, 
and would steal part of what was put in it. Jesus answered, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you don't always have me. Then a large crowd of Jews learned he was there. Quickly moving on, they came not only because Jesus, because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one he had raised from the dead. But chief priests, the chief priests had decided to kill Lazarus also, because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. Side note, and I have very many side notes here. Can you imagine the emotional and physical roller coaster ride um, of Lazarus if he was killed again? It's like he literally died, he was brought to life, and then he would be killed again. Like, I cannot imagine. Um, but also, why would you kill someone that Jesus can literally bring back to life again? Anyways, the next day, verse 12. A large crowd had come to the festival, heard Jesus coming to Jerusalem. They took the palm branches and went out to meet, the, to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's cool. Another one of Ty's side note. The cool thing about Jesus riding the donkey, besides that it fulfills prophecy written hundreds of years earlier in Zephaniah 9.9, is that this is literally a picture of the same way Jesus came into the world in the womb of Mary, sitting on a donkey, looking for a place to, to be birthed. And in a way, he's being ushered by the same donkey or in, by the same animal, and I just find that super cool. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified later on, they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. In hindsight, they realized, oh, this is all written. God had a plan all along. Verse 17, meanwhile, the crowd, the crowd which has been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. This is also why the crowd met him, because they had heard and done this sign. Then the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And they are not exaggerating. In some of the commentaries I read, they estimated that at that time in Jerusalem, in that, for that specific Passover festival, there was, an, there was about one to two million range, the number range of people that came to that festival. It literally looked like the world was at his feet. And so I begin with my first point. What is worship? What is worship? Well, first and foremost, I believe worship is a response. In the, passage we, in the passage we just read, we find two types of responses. Mary's kind of response, response which is wor- lots of S's, which is worshiping Jesus for who he is and what he's done out of love and devotion. And then there's a people's kind of response, which is worshiping him for what he's done and what he can do, which is not necessarily wrong, but can be a misplaced response when it's not so much about what God can do, but what he should and must do for them, which I'll get into a bit later. So diving into Mary's response, this beautiful act of worship, of pouring out this perfume and wiping it with her hair. If you look back at Mary's life, the context of her relationship with Jesus, you can clearly see they have a special relationship. 
In the story in Luke 10, she sits at Jesus' feet and she listens to his teaching. And Martha, his sister, is complaining. Jesus, I have so, I'm doing so many things. Why can't you tell her? Sorry. Why can't you tell her to help me? And Jesus responds, the famous response, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and worried about many things, but Mary has made the right choice, and it will not be taken away from her. It was after seeing Mary weeping and crying at the death of Lazarus that we see this shortest verse in the Bible of how Jesus was moved by her weeping, and he wept too with her. There is no doubt of the relationship between Mary and Jesus. Jesus loved Mary, and Mary honored Jesus for who he is. Yes, her final act of worship may be in response to Jesus' miracle in her life, but her devotion and worship to him has always been evident from the start. There's a small debate in the recordings of the other gospel accounts of this story of Mary pouring out this expensive perfume onto the feet of Jesus. In Mark, he writes that it was an unnamed woman that came forward, broke an alabaster jar, and anointed Jesus' head instead of feet, which is a symbolic act of when someone is to be anointed as king, just how um, the prophet Samuel anointed King David when he was a teenager. Either way, I'd like to take it as a full picture of Mary preparing Jesus' body for burial and foreshadowing his death, resurrection, and his establishment as our King of Kings. And Jesus honored her for this grand act of worship. In Mark 14, 9, I don't know why I'm waiting for it to come out. It's still not going to come out. Anyways, truly I tell you, Jesus says this, truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she, Mary, has done will be told in memory of her. How special is that? How special is that? One of the commentaries wrote, Mary is a forerunner of the believing church, which will in time come to pour out in all the world its works of love from hearts broken at the place of Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus honors our worship, our sacrifice, as we respond to him. A true response of worship comes out of our relationship and revelation of who he is in our lives and what he's done for us. How much more are we called to respond today as people of God? Today that we can clearly see God's love for us through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. How much more today that we have access to God the Father and the Holy Spirit through the cross, receiving the gift of eternal life, and not to mention the blessings and mercy that he bestows on us daily, the seen and unseen common graces we often take for granted. Often I always say this about my worship, is that even if God never answered a single prayer of mine, even after I received Jesus as my Lord and Savior, if he never answered a single prayer, if he never gave me a single blessing, if he never restored anything in my life, I would still worship him with all my heart because of what he did for me on the cross, because of the security that he's given to me and the eternal life that he's given to me. And yet we know he answers, amen? We know he gives. We know he's generous. He blesses us even often beyond what we should receive. And for that, how much more should we respond in worship? How would our worship change when we meditate on that? A small note on Judas' response to Mary's worship. 
Sometimes in your most genuine moments of worship to Jesus, people have things to say. People have things to say. You have no idea how many things I've heard about people commenting on my own worship. But I worship anyways. This is just something that reveals their own flesh, something that reveals the air of their own hearts. But don't be concerned of what others may think when you live a life of wholehearted worship and devotion to him. Worship anyways. A commentary writes, though having the appearance of piety, Judas's objection turns out to be purely self-serving. And even if Judas's objection had been sincere, sincere, his objection that this alabaster jar shouldn't have been wasted on the feet of Jesus, even if that was true, Carson writes that social activism, even that which seeks real needs, sometimes masks a spirit that knows nothing of worship and adoration. I believe this is the difference between being morally good and a religious person versus a true worshiper of God. Doing good and giving alms is just our own efforts as humans to save the world our own way. There will always be the poor, Jesus says. To truly help and save this world is to say that I give because he has given to me and you can know the one that has given life to me and receive eternal life for yourself to proclaim that there is only one true Savior of the world, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He alone can help us and save us beyond our physical and material needs. He alone can save our souls. Now we move into the response of the people's worship. They, as we read in the verse, they were all responding towards the miracle of Lazarus's um, death. They wanted to see Lazarus. They wanted to um, look at this crazy thing that happened, and that's understandable. It was miraculous. It was crazy. But when we look at the relationship between the crowd and Jesus, it's evident that they wanted something from him more than wanting to get to know him. In the story of the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus does this miracle of breaking the bread and the fish and it just miraculously mu multiplies and it fed everyone and everyone was able to even give, uh, bring back um, a goodie bag, like 12 bags worth or something. Um, and because of that, they, they wanted to force Jesus. They, at that moment, like, let's make him king. We want him to be king. He can feed us and we'll never be hungry. And Jesus disappeared, abracadabra, before they could force him to do anything. It was not his time. And it was not up to the people to make him king or make him do whatever they wanted him to do. And just a little bit of context here. The Israelites were, was, were promised a king from the line of King David. They were promised that eventually a new king would come and save them and usher in this new kingdom, a kingdom that is ruled with power and peace. And for years, the Israelites were held captive and were bondage to many nations, to the Egyptians, to the Babylonians, and now the Romans. And so Jesus, he's proving himself to be this miracle worker. He's fulfilling all these prophecies um, the coming Lord and Savior and King, and they were excited, rightfully so, but you can almost get a sense of desperation and forcefulness in their response 
of Jesus. They gather these palm branches as a symbol of victory and kingship, almost to say, yes, our king is here. We are going to win. We're going to be saved. We are no longer going to be under oppression to these Romans. Hosanna, Hosanna, we don't have to pay taxes. Hosanna, Hosanna, we can finally own lands. Hosanna, Hosanna, we can rule other nations instead. And they probably didn't think twice of the way Jesus was riding in so meekly, so humbly on a donkey instead of the usual way a king would arrive with their chariots and horses and multitudes of armies. But they just wanted a king so badly. Hosanna, Hosanna, here comes our king. And the word Hosanna can be used in two ways. To function as a praise and adoration. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But it can also be used as a cry of help. Save us now. A cry of immediate help. And I'd like to think there's two kinds of people in the crowd that day. Those who were his faithful followers of his uh, and recipients of his many miraculous acts. We hear all these stories of people being healed, being set free, the lame walking, the blind see- seeing. Um, those who really sat at his feet and received his teaching. Those who truly, to a degree, believed in who he said he was. And then there were those other millions of people, probably, that were just there because they knew of him. They knew, they heard the stories, the, the rumors, and they're just thinking, oh, that's awesome, he's powerful, he can make a zombie army or whatever, and he can save us with his powers. But they had no idea that the saving he was about to do was greater than the one they were asking for in front of them. Because as we know, eventually, this very Jesus they're shouting Hosanna to, for weeks later, would be hanging on the cross, body torn up, beat up to a pulp, barely recognizable, bloody, weak, with a sign on top of his thorn-crowned head containing the letters I-N-R-I. I, which is Latin for Jesus Nazarenus Rex Euderum, which is in English translate Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews. John 19.20 states that this was written in three languages, Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Google Translate was there at that time. <laughs> but where? Where were the people shouting Hosanna then? Where? The king of Jews, very clearly. Not many were left worshiping him at the foot of the cross. Today, many people cry out the name of Jesus for many different reasons. But what happens when God doesn't show up the way they thought he would? More than just worshiping God for the things he can do and should do, we are ought to worship him for who he is and what he's already done. The victory he has won for us on the cross, as we can confidently say now. When things in our lives don't go according to plan, we can be confident in this one thing. We know how it ends. We know how this story ends. We know where our life will end in Christ. My second main point. Why should we worship? Why? To glorify God. 
Shout out to my brother, Kyle. Um, he's my younger brother, and he came to visit me a couple of months ago here in Seattle, from all the way from Connecticut, and he joined one of our Alpha Nights. Um, Alpha is a course that we do where we explore 10 of life's biggest questions. Um, and after one of the sessions, um, we had a conversation between myself, Dave, and him, and God bless him, he asked such good questions. He said, why is everything about worshiping God? Isn't that a little bit self-centered of him? And I was just like, why are you asking questions to my boss right now? Like, please. <laughs> um, but Dave uh, so graciously answered kind of in this way, and Dave will fix whatever I say wrong here. I trust him. He says, our, he, 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 shows, he shares this illustration that our, life, our lives are like a solar system, and something other than the sun Something other, if something other than the sun is at the center, it's just chaos and darkness and aimlessness and voidness. And it's true. I've experienced that in my own life, knowing Christ. It was full of darkness. I was aimless. I was, it was full of void. I, was, I didn't know what I was doing with my life. But when you put the sun at the center where he belongs and you worship him, you worship the creator of the universe and the creator of you and me, life begins to make sense. Things begin to gravitate and fall into place. There's order and light begins to flood the innermost beings and bring warmth and peace and true life. Sure, life isn't perfect still, and we face storms and trials, but everything somehow has a place. And the center of gravity, which is Jesus, remains the anchor through it all. And when we begin to put God at the center, we realize that he is the only one that truly belongs there. He is the only one that can truly bring everlasting life. He's the only one that can satisfy our deepest needs and desires, the hunger and the thirst that we deeply crave for. It is actually for our own benefit that we glorify and worship him. We were created in his image to give him glory. And when we give him glory, there we find our purpose. There we find joy. There we find peace. There we find meaning in this crazy life. Why should we worship? Because he is worthy. Jesus lived a perfect and righteous life for us. Just as Pastor Dave was praying earlier, he walked righteously and perfectly among us as a man. He did not sin a single, not even once. And not only that, he fulfilled and perfected every single law and requirement and standard. And let's just think about that for a second. For 33 years as a human being, he did not once sin. I can tell you, no matter how hard I try to live righteously, I definitely knowingly and unknowingly probably sinned a hundred times the past week. And yet, he still calls me, you and me, righteous. And yet, he still loves me. He was the perfect sacrifice for hum humanity. humanity. <laughs> he was the spotless lamb. He gave his life for us and imputed his righteousness onto us. I had recently connected with a family member. I won't say our relationship or even the gender to honor and protect this person, so I'm going to say they, but know that there's just about one person. I connected with that person, and they love to worship God. 
They worshipped him with all of their hearts. And day and night, literally, when they would wake up and late at night after everyone else went to bed, they would still worship. They even transformed part of their kitchen into a studio to make room to worship, to worship him. Um, they'd invite anyone, like the first day I met him, they invite anyone to come and worship with him, no matter who they were, where they're from, even if they were strangers. They'd be like, hey, let's worship together. And I love worship. I really do. But I wasn't as obsessed with worship as this person was. And one day I found, a very, I found out the reason where this, this worship comes from in their life. Many years before I'd even known them, they had lived a very, very dark life, which landed them in prison for doing one of the worst things in the world. And it was in prison that they came to know and receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and their life began to be transformed. Eventually, they paid their dues and was set free early, and God restored their family and their life and even had a dream that God had called them to be a worship leader in heaven. They started going to church, and I saw with my own eyes how God began to open the door and opportunity for them to lead worship in not just one, but few churches. And you know what? I was so offended. I was so angry. I was so confused. I couldn't accept it. I said, God, they shouldn't and do not deserve to be worshiping you for what they did. After what they did, they are not worthy. And as soon as that thought came into my mind, I heard the Spirit of the Lord said, but you, Ty, are not worthy either. No one is. No one is worthy to worship Jesus. We all have sinned and fallen short to the standard of God. And it's because of him, because of his blood shed on the cross for you and me, we can now come boldly to the throne of grace and receive help and mercy in our time of need. This is why we can worship. This is why God loves our worship, because it brings glory to the name of his son, Jesus, because what of who he is. Jesus is worthy to be worshipped. Sorry, this is so weird. Okay. Why should we worship? Because there's power. There's power in worship. Worship is a weapon against the enemy. In the Old Testament, Israel's army always sent out the worshiper first, which I thought was super cool, but also super weird. I feel like if we were in a war right now, please don't send me first, Dave. Like, like send some of the guys. Like, please don't do that. <laughs> but there's so many battles won through worship. The walls of Jer- Jericho tumbling down. The story in Second Chronicles 20, where the, enemy, the enemy's armies literally kill themselves because the praises of Israel confuses them and just causes them to fight amongst each other. The enemy cannot and will not stand before the presence of God. So when we worship, there is power. Worship breaks strongholds. Worship heals hearts. Worship sets captives free, all of which I experience in my own life, many times in moments of worship. I worshiped 
I remember one time in Malaysia, usually after the, or when the preacher is making his last point, he'll give like a little wink to the, the keyboardist and they'll come up and kind of usher in the Holy Spirit and make it really holy and as he drives in his last points and usually after he's done, then the worship team will come up and I, am, I was supposed to lead worship at that moment. But the preacher, my pastor, shout out to Pastor Hans in Malaysia, he was preaching about the love of the Father and there were so many things stirring in my heart to respond to it. And all I could think of is, I can't break down right now because I'm gonna sing a really hard song. I need, I need my vocal cords to be clear, my nasal passage to be clear, like I need to contain whatever I'm feeling. I can't respond right now. But he kept going about the love of the Father, the love of the Father, the love of the Father. And as he kind of drove home the last uh, statement and, and left the stage and I stepped on to kind of, you know, come forward to begin worshiping, it's like my knees became weak and I just fell on the ground weeping. I couldn't contain my response. I was just so... I was just so receiving the love of the Father at that moment, and God knew that that was what I needed. And I just worshiped. I just cried. Someone else led worship. It was amazing. <laughs> and then I did the last song, and everything was fine. But let's be free to respond as the word of God is preached, as you feel stirring in our hearts. Let's not, let's not limit ourselves in worship. There's power. The Psalms are full of examples. King David often starts his Psalms as a plea to God to save him, and he always ends and turns it into a declaration and a praise, a perfect example of Hosanna. God, why is life so hard? I can't do this anymore. Save me. But you, God, are my rock, my fortress. I will wait on you. And God delivers him. He's faithful to him and even calls him a man after his own heart. Crying out to God and laying it all down in worship and in sacrificial praise opens the door for faith to arise in our hearts, to remember where our help comes from. It teaches our hearts to trust and rely on where our help comes from. Worshiping God in the darkest moments in my life delivered me from death. It delivered me from fear, from depression, it delivered me from overwhelming, crippling anxiety. I remember I couldn't even, there was a time I was so depressed, so full of crippling anxiety, I couldn't even get up for days. I couldn't eat. All I wanted to do is sleep and not be anymore. I couldn't read the word of God, even though I knew it was the right thing to do. I couldn't do anything. The only thing I can do was just worship. Even if I didn't feel anything, I worshiped. And that was uh, almost like the lifeline for me in that season. Worship, and I, I didn't want to put this in, but I just feel like it's necessary since it's kind of the culture we're creating in Sedaris. Worship, <laughs> forgive me, helps us engage with the five C's. <laughs> Here at Sedaris, <laughs> we believe in the five C's. Um, but I feel it's true, it's so true. It's where we can connect with God. It's where we can converse with God, have a conversation with him. It's the way we consider who he is. Dave always likes to say, consideration is the beginning of worship. Is that correct? Yeah. It's where we receive conviction sometimes. 
It is where we confess who God is to us, which brings me to my next point. How should we worship? Well, we should worship through our public confession. The physical, actual act of worship, or how David so affectionately likes to call it now, wafting. (laughs) What is wafting? Well, if you witnessed earlier, he was like doing the dance moves as the kids are like (laughs) doing the palms. Yeah, we had a moment in the office where we realized worship is basically just wafting, wafting. What is that? What is it all about? It's to confess with our mouths and to sing in a loud voice, to lift up our hands and shout to the Lord, as psalmist often writes. Through this physical act of worship and obedience in the scripture, we are spreading this sweet-smelling aroma of Christ and letting it permeate into our lives, into our hearts. And then together, I know this sounds so weird, but we're sticking to it, wafting it out into the world. Ephesians 5, 2 says, Walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant, sacrificial offering to God. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 17 says, But thanks be to God. Actually, I want us all to read this together. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 17. Let's see who gets there first. Just kidding. Take your time. It is in page 1024. Let's read it together from 14 to 17. It's worth taking note of this. Are we ready? Yeah. Verse 14, but thanks be to God who always leads us in Christ's triumphal procession and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For to God we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To some we are an aroma of death leading to death, ouch, but to others an aroma of life leading to life. Who is adequate for these things? For we do not market the word of God for profit like so many. On the contrary, we speak with sincerity in Christ as from God and before God. We are a sweet-smelling aroma to the world. How we live in devotion and worship to Jesus diffuses the sweet-smelling aroma I've heard many, many stories and testimonies of how when people begin to change, when they receive Jesus and begin to be transformed, they suddenly start smelling different. They start to smell like life. My niece, God bless her, I love her so much. I love her so much and she loves me so much that every time we hug, she'll take this big waft and smell me and say, Mm, I missed your smell. (laughs) It's kind of weird, but kind of cute, and I love it. And that's what people sense in our lives as children of God. Even when we step into a space or a home sometimes, there is just this sweet smell. And it could be the scented candles, I don't know. But there's just something about it that you know prayer happens here. Worship happens here. Jesus is glorified here. So please, smell the person next. No, just kidding. Don't do that. (laughs) Do not smell the person next to you. 
We are sweet-smelling aroma. Another way we're called to worship is by the way we live, what we do with our bodies, how we engage with the world, with one another. Romans 12:1 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of mercy, in the, of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Often people look at this as a legalistic verse, that somehow it's telling us to live like nuns or monks and abstain from everything in this world. I, although I believe in the standard that we as Christians are called to walk in, I think what Paul is also saying here is that every part of our body is capable of causing harm, either to ourselves or others, or to bring healing. To present our bodies as a living sacrifice, set apart and pleasing to God, is to use the capacity of our bodies to bring good into this world through our acts of love, to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to give a comforting hug, to carry each other's burdens, to see someone according to how God sees them with our eyes, to speak life and encouragement and, and, and good words over people with our mouths. Even giving generously to one another is an act of worship which diffuses the aroma of Christ into this world. We know the passage Philippians 4.19, but I've never seen this before in the the two verses before that or the three verses before that. Philippians 4.16-19 says, For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. But I've received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided. And this is what he says, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And then every Christian's favorite verse comes after that. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Lastly, how should we worship? How should we worship? How does it look like? I believe we should worship with all our hearts, with all our minds, and all our strengths. And there's no way we can do that without the help of the Holy Spirit. In John 4, there's this story of a woman that encounters Jesus at the well. And Jesus asks, he starts the, fir- the connection first, and she responds, and this beautiful conversation ensues about being thirsty and receiving water. And Jesus saying, I have water that will satisfy your thirst forever. And then she begins to ask really good questions about worship. She says, uh, the Jews and all that said we have to worship at this specific mountain, basically saying, hey, I really want to worship you, but you know, I'm not a Jew, or I'm not qualified, or whatever. And Jesus says, basically answers her and said, it's no longer about the place, but it's about how we ought to worship. He says, there will come a time where we can worship in spirit and in truth. Worship is where we can receive the living water from heaven, where we can be washed and be made clean, 
where the things of our hearts can be fully revealed and, and you can be fully known, just as he tells her everything about who she is and yet fully engages with her. And she's almost set free by that. And she runs and, and evangelizes to the city and says, come and worship him, come and hear him, come and see him, the one that fully knows me. Worship is where we can be fully known. And for some people, even for me before, that seems really scary and intimidating. But it's freeing when you know that the one who fully knows you, flaws and all, is fully and madly in love with you. And he wants to make himself known to you. Run to him in worship. Cry to him in worship. Dance to him. Lay down your life to him. Give your heart to him, your dreams in worship. Pour out your love to him in worship with your own voice, with your own song. My prayer is that Sedaris would be a true place that is not a place of worship, but a place where people who already worship in spirit and in truth gather and are free, free to worship. Dave and Ryan likes to describe the mission of the Sedaris as reaching out to the Potpourri's of Seattle. We use potpourri's as sort of an acronym for the generation that is post-college and pre-kids, liking them to actual potpourri's, which are that mixture of dried herbs and dead flowers used as a sort of natural air freshener. Sometimes you put it in this pretty pot and everything and put it around your house or whatever. But the thing about potpourri's is that it's sweet-smelling, for a while, but it doesn't last long. Eventually, it produces no smell at all. It becomes totally dead and totally dry. This is a picture of the world we live in. It's essentially dying. Sure, it offers some kind of smell and artificial aromas, but it never lasts long. It'll eventually die. And the dying world sees this church and sees the people of God offering their lives at the feed of Jesus, breaking out our hearts of alabaster jar and worshiping him. And, and the dying world smells this aroma, and for them it's death. They say it's a waste of time. It's a waste of energy. It's a waste of resources. We can save the world with our own efforts, our own ways, our own strengths. But little do they know, there is only one way, one truth, and one life. And our worship is an appropriate response to the gift of that eternal life given through us to the breaking of our special, precious Lord Jesus on the cross. By merit of who he is, he demands our worship. And what he's done for you and me deserves our worship forever. He deserves our all. He deserves our everything. Thank you, God. Shall we all pray?